So grab your Bible, if you would, and turn to Hebrews in chapter 13. Hebrews 13, whether you have a copy of the Bible on page or an electronic version, let's all get on the same page together in Hebrews 13. And welcome to our very last message in our series on Hebrews. This is my 20th message in this series and aided by a few messages from Pastor Sheldon and Jonathan. This 13th chapter book has taken us down many, many roads in discussing, let's see if these things maybe jog your memory over the course of time. We've discussed the Old and New Covenants, that Jesus is superior to the prophets, the kings, the sacrifices, the ceremonies. We talked about a guy named Melchizedek, if that sounds familiar to you. We worked through the worship of the tabernacle and how Jesus is the high priest and he's the sacrifice that brings us to God. We went through my favorite phrases in Hebrews, and I absolutely love these. The phrases, once for all. Man, I love that phrase. Once for all. And here's my other favorite phrase, for all time. For all time. And then we also talked about, um, we've seen that this life of faith in Jesus is worth it. And there are a host of people that bear witness to it. And, and this hasn't been a short read when we got together months and months and months ago to begin this, I mentioned we're not going to put on our running shoes when we go through Hebrews. We're going to put on our work boots because this is going to be a lot of work slogging through this book of the Bible, and it certainly has been. <clears throat> so I get a chuckle out of this verse for all the work and the labor that we put into this book of the Bible, we get to the very end of it in chapter 13, and here's what the writer says. He says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, catch this, he says, I have written to you quite briefly. Can you believe that? Quite briefly, you write a book like this, and then you call it brief. Now, I, I, when, I, when I read that, I, I was thinking in my head, I wonder what it would look like if he took his time. And we don't know who the writer is, but I'm convinced that if he thought this was brief, he was the first among many other Baptist preachers that came after him, without a doubt. He definitely has that gift to him. Well, here we go. This last chapter in Hebrews is the grand finale, and it's like the fireworks that we see. The grand finale of the fireworks, it's just like there's so many different things at the very end that come out. There's not necessarily one main theme to the chapter, and so we're going to see, when we get into this chapter, a number of different commands that pop out in chapter 13, a smattering of just about everything, and then he comes down to what we're going to put the car and park on, a benediction. 
and he's going to end the book the way he started it. The last word of Hebrews is going to be the same as the first word of Hebrews. So let's jump into it. Here's the commands that he gives. Let me look with you, chapter 13, the first six verses. And here's the first command that he tells his readers. He wants them to remember to love. Remember to love. So chapter 13, starting in verse 1, he says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what can mere mortals do to me. So here in these six verses, and I'm just going to work through these, we have another two commands because I want to land on the benediction. But here's the first command, remember to love. And he mentions that a number of focuses of love that, that are here in the passage. He mentions to love one another The first verse, and in fact, it's in a tense, keep on, do not let this end. You you started doing it, continue to love. He mentions the next focus of your love is to love strangers. In fact, he says, you know what? There might even be a surprise in it for you. You never know, you might entertain an angel without even knowing it. He says, here's someone to love. And you know, in our nation of, although we feel our privileges and freedoms shrinking at this point in time, the reality is we still are privileged with the freedoms that we have. And many other nations and many other peoples right now have their freedoms enclosed and and their ability to worship and they suffer for the cause of the gospel And and so he says, remember those individuals who are suffering for the sake of their faith. Many times our mind just glosses over that and we think whoever is out there has it just the same way that we do. And so love those who are suffering for the faith. Remember those people just as though you were in the same situation. Then he mentions marriage. And our, our view of marriage must be high. And friends, I think we can understand in today's world when the view of marriage is low and the view of sexual purity is low, he says, love your spouse, keep pure. God wants us to have a high view of marriage and sexual purity, and he will not take it lightly, those who view this poorly. And then he says, love what you have been given because people end up Shifting their love from what they have and what God has given them, and they end up saying, you know what, I need more. I want more. The love of money consumes, and 
And no longer are they content with what God has given to them. He says, love what you've been given. Be content. Especially love what you've been given in Jesus Christ because he's always there. He never leaves. He never forsakes. Be content with who we have in Jesus Christ. So here's the the beginning focus of the book. Arguably, one of the most complex readings in all of the New Testament about Jesus Christ. And when he gets done with all of the complexities of teaching and doctrine about Jesus, he really drops the bomb and he says, you know what, I know that I've told you a lot of things about Jesus, but here's the real focus. I want you to be like Jesus. All that he did in the gospel, all that he did in his humility, true belief in who Jesus is, should change how we are. Because Pharisees were enamored with their rules, their intellect, their tradition, and people who truly followed Jesus are enamored with his sacrifice, his humility, his love, and they inculcate gospel values into their lifestyle as well. Here's a couple phrases I want to give you, a couple quotes. This one I love by John Flavel. This is great. He says, those who truly know Jesus will be humble. Think about it. Those who truly know Jesus will be humble. Second part of it's true too. And those who truly know themselves, they cannot be proud. When we have a right view of Jesus Christ, when we really engage in who he is, It changes our attitude of who we are. Now, I grew up on all the hymns. I could have a hymn sing-off with the best of them. And here's one that changes our mindset when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. The words come into mind. My richest gain, can you say it? I count but loss and pour contempt on all my, on all my pride. When I get a picture of Jesus in my head, It changes what I think about myself. The more I know Jesus Christ, the more it changes my life. However, people that become enamored with themselves and with their actions, with their accomplishments, changes them as well. I saw a great quote this week by Taylor Medu. It says, a mistake that makes you humble is much better than an achievement that makes you arrogant. How true that is. A right view of Jesus, really understanding what he's done, changes who we are and how we act. So it should come as no surprise 
that after all of the, of the intense discussion that the writers had about Jesus Christ, he comes out with his first final command and he says, you know what, our focus needs to be on loving others, not self, not arrogance, not personal achievement, the values of a religion of human achievement like the Jews were dealing with our positioning, lording, pride, self-serving, the values of a Christ-centered religion are humility, love, others-mindedness. I got to jump into number two here because we got to move through these. Here's number two. He continues on in chapter 13 and he says, his second command, remember to respect and have confidence in your leaders. In this um, grand finale of fireworks that seems maybe a little disconnected, first of all, remember to love and then remember to respect and have confidence in your leaders. There's a few verses in here that are stretched out in different areas. Notice verse 7 is the first one. He says, remember your leaders. And he identifies who they are, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another verse he uses within this passage to talk about the leaders is verse 17 and 18. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And then he mentions down at verse 24, his last discussion about leaders, he says, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people, those from Italy, send you their greetings. And so here's a few verses smattering that he talks about leaders within the context of his last words to them in Hebrews. And there's a few things that he mentions that I just want to outline as we work through these commands to remember and respect and have confidence in your leaders. There is a predisposition that he desires the people to have to follow and not frustrate your leaders. Now, how different from today's society? If you watch the news today, everything today on the news is question, conspiracy, problems, concerns. There, there's there's the struggle that gets thrown out there of accusing, assuming the worst. And really, within the body of Christ, the writer here says, you know, I want things to be different for your assemblies. I want there to be a predisposition. I want it to be in your natural inclination to say, you know what, I, I desire to follow. He wants them to imitate their faith. Like, watch your leaders and, and imitate their faith. Compare that with chapter 11, their risks, their perseverance, their advancements for the kingdom. Imitate their, 
their efforts to strive for Jesus Christ. And then even over in verse 17, as I just work through these things quickly, he says, yield to them, remembering that they yield to God. You know, it's not that they don't have any accountability. They certainly do, and they must give an account. And God is going to hold all leaders accountable within church ministry and do so in a very serious way. He's the great shepherd. And then here's the other thing that he mentions. You know, there's no advantage to the kingdom, and there's no advantage to the people. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden there's no kingdom advantage to burdening leaders i I remember um i don't know if you know this about me but i was a i was a youth pastor for three years so my first three years of ministry i was in ohio and that's a problem in and of itself are you with me on this folks amen amen okay so i was in ohio and i was a youth pastor for three years and You want to know what did me in in youth ministry? All-nighters. I have no idea how Pastor Rice does it. All-nighters. And I was single. And after three years of about three or four all-nighters a year, I said, you know what? Enough of this. Enough of these all-nighters. You know, I, I, need to, I need to think about something different. You know, I, and, and God was placing my heart in some different areas, and I really in, enjoyed speaking ministry and preaching ministry, and other people were talking to me about that. But all-nighters were tough. And so as a lead pastor, though, let me just share with you, as a lead pastor... I've had many more all-nighters. I've had many more all-nighters as a lead pastor than I ever dreamed I would as a youth pastor. And the kingdom advantage that comes from releasing burdens from leaders is significant. So the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? Let's be predisposed to respect. To having confidence. And and you know, it's easy when we agree. It's easy when there's no issue. You know, it's it's kind of um, obvious. It's tested when we don't. You know, it's, it's like the wife that says, you know, I don't struggle with submission it's only when we disagree, you know. I mean, that's the obvious one. It, it's, it, that's when the test comes. And, and we work through things well. We work through things respectfully. We let those who believe Jesus is Lord, we, we let God know that we truly believe he is Lord. And we work through things the way that he wants us to. So we remember to respect and have confidence in your leaders. That's what the text mentions. Here's number three. And we're going to work this right on through. These are the last words of Hebrews. 
So he mentions um, in verse 9, remember right teaching about Jesus. Now this is what the whole passage has been about. Remember right teaching about Jesus. Look at verse 9. He, he, he mentions, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. And then he describes it. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. So he's tipping his hand. This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about grace. He's talking about Jesus. Not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And then he goes into his polemic again in verse 11, and he continues on it about the high priest, and we've talked about in the past, and if I may, for sake of time, just begin to waltz into this, that the false teaching the writer is concerned about was that of a ritualistic, humanistic, achievement-styled religion, not one based in the grace of Jesus Christ. And our access to God is always and only through Jesus Christ. It's always and only through his sacrifice on the cross. It's always to bear our sin and God's wrath. That's what it always is. It's always about grace. He says, anyone who tries to make this religion about, you know what, it's about your achievement, it's about your works, it's about your accomplishments. He says, that's baloney. It's about Jesus Christ. It's what the whole book has been about. And so he comes up to the last words, and let me give them to you. It's down in verses 20 and 21. So here's this benediction of sorts. Look at it like a prayer, a prayer of blessing over the people that he gives. And I'm going to put it up on, this, on the screen behind us. And this prayer of blessing is going to give us the last words of Hebrews, which is really the first words of Hebrews, that it's all about Jesus Christ. And here's the benediction. It says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good, everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the last words of Hebrews. Essentially, the writer ends the way he started it. And he wants people to know, hey, Christianity, it's all about Christ. It's all pointing to Jesus Christ. It's not a religion powered by self or my efforts or my works or my accomplishments the writer finishes with this understanding that whatever good that is in you, whatever benefit that is in our relationship with God, and here's the two words that we need to park on, it always comes, here's the two words, through Jesus. Through Jesus. 
And he mentions it twice in this benediction. Verse 20, he mentions, may the God of peace, and then he goes to verse 20, equip you, but notice what that equipping is through, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, it's through Jesus Christ, God's equipping work in us starts at Christ's saving work. And then notice in verse 21, he says, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. So here's the two words that we're going to finish with. It's all through Jesus. It's through Jesus. Now think about the word through. Oftentimes we think of the word through as a spatial thing. I'm going through a tunnel. I'm working through a problem. Here in this preposition, the idea of through means this. Through in this word means it's because of, it's on account of, or it's by the instrumentality of. So let me just grab your attention for a second. Here's what it's all about. So the subject of the through, which is Jesus, Jesus is the agent by which you gain, attain, or accomplish something. It's through Jesus. We, he's the agent by which you gain, attain, or accomplish something. So let me just illustrate this for a moment. This is um, a little over a year and a half ago. My, one of my girls was driving uh, our vehicle, and she was at the intersection of Silver Lake Road and 31. You, you know where that is, Silver Lake Road and 31? So right there is the Tom's, there's the Tom's supermarket, there's the old Fifth Third Bank that I think is out of business now, and there are 10 lanes of highway right there, 10 lanes. She finished work, she was at that intersection, it is rush hour, it is packed to the gills, and her car stalled out. And all I know is I get this phone call, and she says, Dad, and she's crying. She says, Dad, my car stalled out. I'm right in the middle of the intersection. And, and okay, if I could just time out here, time out. Sometimes, sometimes there can be a slight teensy-weensy bit of exaggeration in these things, and you grade on the curve a little bit, and I'm thinking, okay, really, you're right in the middle of the intersection, Really? You know? And so I, I'm thinking, I'll get there and I'll figure it out. I'm right in the middle of the intersection. I'm holding everyone up and everyone's upset, you know, and, and I need some help. And so I, I'll be right there as quick as I can, honey. And so I, I didn't know what the problem was. I threw jumper cables in my car and whoosh, I zoom over there while I get there. Let me tell you, folks, she was not exaggerating. There is a red light right there, and there is my daughter sitting right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the intersection. There's some people honking beeps of encouragement to her. 
and I'm like, oh my, what am I going to do? So I pull over, and I get out, and I say, honey, put it in neutral, and I'm going to push you over to the side, and I, (sighs) it's not easy pushing a car from a dead stop, and so I'm pushing, and I'm pushing, and finally, we get it over, and what was really unique, I think people just thought I was an innocent bystander, and they start applauding for me. As I push her out of the way and get her over on the side of the road, and, and there she is over there, and, um, and we end up, I jumpstart her car, it was the battery, we drove up the road to the auto zone by Lowe's, we get a new battery, and hey, everything is all good, and we're off to the races. Well, I learned a little lesson from that. And it's this, you know, Cars were made to propel themselves, not to be pushed to their destination. (laughs) And here's the reality of it. Cars are not made for me to push them to where they need to go. They're made to carry me to where I need to go. I know that sounds genius, doesn't it? There's a whole thing of effort here that we're getting at, the through. The wasted effort and energy, just imagine the wasted effort and energy and how ridiculous we would all look to everyone around if we tried pushing our cars to their destination. Number one, it's ridiculous, it's mission impossible, but everyone would say, hey, don't you realize that thing is made to carry you? You're not made to push it. And so we get to the very end of Hebrews, and it's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's what he stresses to his readers and to all of us he says this he says you know what the means by which we gain attain or accomplish something in our relationship with God is only and solely through Jesus Christ So think about this, our ability to gain God's acceptance is by means of Jesus Christ. Our ability to do God's will is by means of Jesus Christ. Our ability to please God is by means of Jesus Christ. It is not going to be accomplished by my self-efforts. This is what he said the whole book long. Don't think it's going to be trusting in the prophets, trusting in your ceremonies, trusting in your sacrifices that's going to get you to heaven. That's like pushing your car to your destination. He says, what you need to do is to trust in the work of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus. He's the one that is the instrument, the means that carries you to your destination. 
It's not going to be accomplished by my self-efforts, by my gutting it out on my own, like the little engine that could. You know, I think I can. I think I can. There is an agent, the writer says, who created the way and works in us to grow us, and it's Jesus Christ. So here's how he finishes it, and here's how we're going to finish today. With these two primary things in the benediction, Number one, relationship with God is only through Jesus. Relationship with God is only through Jesus. And that's what he mentions in verse 20. And here's, here's the wording. It says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Equip you with every good thing for doing his will. It's through the blood of the eternal covenant that he brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. You know, it's, that's the way this works. So the Jewish people that were trying to push their way to God's approval if I just do more ceremonies, if I just burn more incense, if I sacrifice more animals, if I push more, I can get close to God on my efforts to gain his approval. And here's what he says, hey, stop, stop. God has engineered this plan of salvation. Instead of pushing on your own, you trust in Christ alone. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, say it with me, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's all about Jesus Christ. Paul says later, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus. There's no one else. So, can I just mention, whether you're online today, whether you're in-house, here's what it is. Attending church isn't going to gain you God's approval. Putting money in the plate isn't going to gain you God's approval. Serving in a ministry isn't going to gain you heaven and God's approval. Trying to get in a ministry leadership position isn't going to gain you God's acceptance and approval. The only way is through Jesus. It's by putting your faith, your belief, your hope, your reliance. It's getting in and allowing him to carry you. It's through Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He bore God's wrath for my wrong so I can be forgiven. It's through Jesus. That's where it's at. Relationship with God is only through Jesus. Amen? That's number one. Here's number two. So on that side of the cross, it's through Jesus. Well, what about on the other side of the cross? See, some people trust Christ for their salvation, but then they're like, oh, now I really need to work hard. 
Now I've got all these things I need to do to please God. Like, he carried me to salvation, but now I need to jump out of the car and push it on this side. Here's the second thing in the benediction. Pleasing God is only through Jesus. He mentions in verse 21, he equips you with everything good for doing his will. Notice the last part of the benediction. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Here's the wording. Through Jesus Christ. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. Pleasing God is only through Jesus. So not only on the front side of the cross does Jesus work in us, but he works in us on the other side of the cross. So we come close to Jesus and trust him for our salvation, but you know, we need to come close to Jesus and have him work in us for our personal spiritual growth. Let me put it this way, because Jesus said it well. If we're to bear fruit, if we're to bear a life that's pleasing to him, he said it in John 15, 4, abide in me as I abide in you, because no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So there's this connection with Jesus Christ. It's not that we just need him for salvation and then we get out and push the car. No, 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 no. We need to be connected to Jesus the whole way through. It's always through Jesus. He works in us even to please God on the other side. And I'll just confess. Because in church... I've been in the position where I've mistaken busyness for abiding. I'm doing so much and my schedule's so full, I've mistaken that for abiding with Jesus. Or I've mistaken knowledge for closeness. I know so much. Or I've mistaken longevity for relationship. I've been a believer this long. And abiding is so much more. The scriptures talk about it as loving, chewing and meditating on his word, praying continually, thanksgiving, communing with Jesus. And if we're going to grow on this side of the cross, we need to be connected to Jesus, loving him, worshiping him, talking to him, depending on him, that's abiding in him. Connected to the instrument and the agent by which we grow and please God. The last words of Hebrews are the first words of Hebrews. 
It's all about Jesus Christ. We don't get us in our own effort to the finish line. That's what Jesus was there for. And then in the end of the benediction, who gets the credit? Well, to Jesus does. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's who gets the credit. Amen? It all goes to him. Would you stand with me? I just want to ask you the question as you stand, as you close your eyes, as you focus. Is your life being lived through Jesus? Which side of the cross are you on? And if you're on the front side of it thinking, hey, I'm here in church, hopefully God will let me into heaven. Hopefully he'll accept me. You're pushing. Jesus died for you, to forgive you, to clean you. Would you put your faith in him, in that Do you talk to him and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've screwed up. Forgive me. Clean me. Make me your child. You're my boss. I'm your servant. Lead me. Make me yours. Would you do that today? And if you're on the other side of the cross, would you, would you express to Jesus, I can't grow on my own. <laughs> it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's Christ-likeness. It's not my work and my effort. God, I need the help of Jesus Christ and Make plan, make strategy to abide, really to abide in him. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you. Thank you for doing everything we can't. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for making the way when there was no other way. And Lord, may not only the last word of Hebrews, but may our final word be Jesus. May it be Jesus. That through him, you do in us what we cannot do on our own. And we are grateful. And we pray in his name. Amen.